Well, this morning we continue on in Acts. You can turn in your scriptures to Acts chapter 7. It is one of the longest chapters, 60 verses. Oh my goodness, pastor, what are you going to do? We're going to cover it all today in about 25 minutes. What? I know I say that a lot. I was able to take a group of students back in uh, 1998 overseas for a missions trip. And the particular work we were doing was centered out of Bethlehem Bible College. uh, And it wasn't in Israel. It was actually in the West Bank. It was actually just a little north of Hebron in a little village that was established by the UN in the armistice. The individual that I was connected with that lived there remembers walking all the way from the coastal plain to where the UN put them in a section of a house that would look like our sound booth. Not our sound booth, sorry, our media booth. The sound booth, I could sleep there, nobody else, okay? But our media booth. And that's what each family was allotted to live in. And from there, they were given more, and they were given a little bit more, and they were given a little bit more, and that community just kind of blossomed and became this area for Palestinian refugees. So we were doing a work in this area and trying to take the message of Christ into a Muslim community. Not a lot of parents signed their kids up for that. And so we went in and we ran kind of a day camp. We were allowed to speak about Jesus. Um, It was really miraculous. It was pretty incredible. But part of what we did there was we did a conversion of of what they called a rec room. And it it was probably 20, um, 20 feet by 15 feet. Uh, maybe 30 feet by 15 feet. And really what they wanted to do is develop it for the young men in the community as kind of a workout room. And so we tore up the carpet, we put in new carpet, we sanded all the walls, we put in new lights, we put in mirrors on the far wall. In other words, we made it like an American high school workout room, okay? And so I remember getting to the end of the, end of the week and it was time to paint the room. Everything else was established, it was looking good, carpet smelled good, it was time to go get the paint and we go to this, this hardware store. Um, it was called Joe's, kind of like Lowe's. No, when you go overseas or in other lands, they, they kind of rip off Home Depot. It'll be like, like uh, Yard Depot or Yardbirdie or something like that. And it was something like that. So we go in there and he says, okay, what colors do you want? And all I can picture is the last weight room I was in. I said, well, let's go with these colors. So we get in there, we paint the walls, we get it all set up and the community leaders all come in, and, and we had worked hard, and it was hot in the summer, and, and we were running a day camp in the morning, and then we were working hard on this room in the afternoon, and we were exhausted, and we put in a whole week's of work, and here's the big celebration. We're excited, and, and I'm just kind of reading some of these guys, some of these community leaders. First of all, you know, they know exactly who we are, and, and they're not really buying into that, and we're kind of there as their guests, and so there's a little bit of tension anyway. But I'm reading a little something more into this. And so, you know, we have a little ceremony and dedication of the place. And, you know, we get back to Bethlehem Bible College. And I turn to my friend Ibrahim and I said, you know, was I just imagining it? Or 
were they like a little upset at us? I, I don't understand. And he has this little grin on his face. And he says, well, um, you painted our new rec room the Israeli national colors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I say today that the message is titled, Know Your Audience, don't do what I just did. So somewhere, just a little north of Hebron, there's, I'm sure they painted over it within 10 minutes of us leaving there. And so, sometimes you just don't think when you're in front of an audience. That's not the case here with Stephen today. He thought very diligently about what he said and who he was. And that's what we want to examine. That's what we want our takeaway today. The history of this passage is we have to go back to the previous week where Stephen's gathered up. He was a deacon. He was a man that was faithful. He was a man that was holy. He was set apart. And he was speaking truth. And so because of that, he was a threat to the establishment. So the Sanhedrin gathers him up and they start grilling him and they start telling him to stop talking that way and we get to the end of that passage and it says that he had what a face of an angel and so for some reason they stopped you know you have these chapters and verses there's no chapter and verse here it's a continuation of thought but now we get into 60 verses and one of the longest prolific speeches by a non-apostle in the entire new testament so they continue to harass and persecute Stephen. We can relate to persecution. Brothers and sisters, today we see the persecution that's happening worldwide. We talked about it last week. It's not going away. It's not going away. But yet, I don't need to necessarily go to the persecution that's out there around the world. There is a persecution that happens even in our own lives. That we are challenged if not weekly, maybe even daily, about will we stand for Christ? Will we stand for Christ? Stephen stood. And what were his first words? Well, as you look at it, it says this, and the high priest said, are these things so? These things referring to what was being accused of him. Now, he was being accused of bringing blasphemous words against um, the religious leaders, against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. They were running up as many charges as they could. So the high priest comes to Stephen and says, are these true? Look at Stephen's ability to know his audience here. What are his first words? Brothers and fathers, Hear me, brothers and fathers. What is he saying? You're not going to hear the word brother again throughout this passage or even as you examine it yourself. You're not going to read it. Um, maybe it appears one more time. But you are going to hear the word father. Because what he does is he goes and gives a history lesson. He's saying if you're going to say that I am guilty of uh, slandering Moses or the patriarchs, or the law, let me give you an understanding of what those things are. And he goes through this long history lesson. Now what I've done is I've segmented sections this morning for us to look at, and we'll get to that in our three points. You have a sermon outline this morning. You can pull that out and write down some notes. 
Um, but he starts with this idea of fathers and brothers, this idea of fathers to connect them back to where he is about to go. He says it very specifically because he knows his audience, and his audience wants to hold on to all of this old established stuff that has been nullified. And he is a threat to that. And so he particularly uses his words, but then he inserts himself as a Jewish, uh, a, a Greek Jew, and he calls them, calls them brothers saying, I understand because I have lineage in this as well. He knows his audience. And as he speaks, and as he gets ready to speak truth, he inserts himself in. Have you ever done that? That's a counseling technique. He's not necessarily trying to polarize them from him. He's going to speak truth. They're trying to polarize him from them, and he says, no, 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 we're brothers. You need to listen. He's very particular with what he says as he gets ready here on his introductory you know, we've seen a lot of movies and we've read a lot of stories where they say any final words. This is kind of this scene this morning out of chapter 7. When the high priest says these words, are these things so, Stephen knows exactly what he's saying. He's saying, any last words, Stephen, before we kill you. Yeah, Stephen's got some last words. You're going to hear them in a minute, but they are not what you would suspect he would say. And so we want to take, pay particular attention to that. As we get ready to look at that and break down the different passages we're going to, or verses we're going to look at or, or portions of, of Stephen's um, discourse, I have a very simple question for you this morning. It's one that Roger Daltrey, that great theologian, no, wrong, that great entertainer, whatever you want to say. But he and his band, actually maybe it was Peter Townsend that penned these words. Many of you may even know what I'm about to say, but it marked a generation and it's a great question. Who are you? And it is amazing how those who have had so much success according to the world, at the end of all of it, they get to that point and they say what? Who are you? Self-reflection. Who are you? This is what we wrestle with today. This is our takeaway today. This is what I want you to look at Stephen's stand. And I want you to wrestle with this idea. Who are you? Because Stephen knew who he was. Stephen knew who he was. Let's start this morning with this idea of the persecution of hope. And I'm going to have some offsets, some ancillary verses. You're going to see them down below. Um, and I encourage you, I'm not going to have all that passage, like Romans 5, 1 through 11. That's not all going to be listed. So mark it down and go back and, and read the rest. Uh, but we're going to take some little portions of Stephen's discourse here to give you an understanding of what he's getting at, what he's saying. So under this idea of the persecution of hope, you see Acts 7, verses 6-7. Let's look at this real briefly. As he starts his history lesson with those who knew better, right? With those that are ready to say, what are your last words? And so he comes at them with everything that they would know. With everything that they want to hold on to. With every tradition, with every established thought that undergirds their power. And he says this, starting in verse 6. 
And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. So why did I pick this out? Because when you look at this examination of Stephen standing before these folks, the question for you and I is we're supposed to kind of see ourselves there. You you know what I mean? We're supposed to insert ourselves into this story. And the reality is what hope does Stephen have? This is it. And for standing for his God, for standing for Christ, what hope does he have? You see, we would think... Our, our view of this, our expectation of this, would be that we would survive. That if Jesus, if I honor Jesus, Jesus is going to grant me safe passage. Now, he's already done it for Peter and John, right? He's got that history. So maybe Stephen's hope is that Jesus is going to show up and blind these guys or open prison doors or somehow relieve him. But every time, Every time hope exists, there's always persecution. Is there not? The church is blowing up. People are being healed. Thousands are coming to Christ. The Holy Spirit is there. There is so much hope that's happening to the church. And so what does Satan want to do? What does man want to do? We want to destroy it. We want to persecute the hope. How does that work? We had just a great, great time a week ago. We had a graduation for one of my children this past week and uh, it was a great celebration but uh, there was an awards so I'm seriously going to pay you this time okay Um, I have the five dollars actually I'm just going to do this it's in my wallet in the office I promise you I have a deal with my kids that if I mention them up front they get five dollars I never pay them they say so this one's pretty in depth so five dollars maybe even ten so um so my daughter received this letter saying that she won a a senior award and uh so we were all excited about going and it took me back to when i received a letter my senior year saying that i received a senior award but here's the deal i had a friend that worked up in the offices and i thought he pulled a prank on me because i was not a good student and i'm thinking oh yeah uh uh-huh yeah i'm not going you're not suckering me i can just see you know, because he was a good student. He's going to be there like, huh, what are you doing here, dude? You know, you didn't get it. So I'm like, I'm not going. And then I get there, and I got, like, photographer of the year, and my photo teacher's ripping me one side to the left and saying, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you show up? And I'm like, what? Really? And so she gets, you know, Jericho gets this, you know, thing. And I said, we're going. And she's like, no, Dad, I, I really don't think that there's, you know, we don't, we don't need to go. And, and it's just a stupid thing. And I go, no, we're going. I need to relive this, okay, <laughs> through you. And so, uh, so we get there, and we show up, and, um, you know, we're sitting at a table with some, some friends of Jericho's, and, and we're moving through, and moving through, and moving through, and moving through, and it's one thing after another, and one thing after another, and, and I remember going to another time where I had this great hope. My, my junior year of college, I was certain I was going to get an award. You're all going to do a big O here in a minute, like your sympathy O. I was certain I was going to get... Uh, an award for um, being on, on the soccer team at, at college. As a matter of fact, somebody told me I was going to, so I called my parents and said, yeah, yeah, you know what, drive like five hours and be at this banquet because I'm getting an award. And, and so, 
let's go back to modern day. And, and so I've got all this hope. And, and so we're moving through this ceremony and everybody's getting called. And, and pretty soon, you know, Jericho's getting nervous. And she's getting nervous and she's like, I, I, I knew that this was going to happen to me. And, and I'm like, oh no, please, Jesus, don't let this happen. Because when I had my parents come for that, I didn't get an award. No, this is the part where you go, thank you. And I was crushed. And then it didn't help that mom and dad were like, did we miss something? Were you supposed to get something? Time's burning. Let's get in the car, Ellen. You know. And, uh, and that was it. I'm like, I'm crushed. I'm like, because, you know, I'm a big award guy, right? And so I'm, I'm there, and, and now we're getting into this, we're getting the latter half, now we're in like two-thirds, and now people at the table just keep telling Jericho, I- I'm sure you're going to get this award. And I'm like, no, please, just stop. Because Jesus, if this doesn't happen, how are we all going to recover from this, especially me? <laughs> right? And I'm just praying, oh God, don't destroy her, I mean my hope. And they just keep like, Jericho, we know. And we're down to the last two awards. Yeah. And they're like big awards, right? And so Jericho's like trying to excuse herself to the bathroom, you know, all this stuff. You know, I got, you know, I'll go jump in the car with grandma and grandpa, you know. And she gets called for this prestigious award. And her face just lit up. And she was so excited. But you know what? She was agonizing. I was agonizing. There's persecution in hope, isn't there? Not when we reach that day when we're in heaven. All hope will be realized. But hope is important. The church, the early church, this church, you have hope in Jesus Christ when you place it in the right things. We've got the Romans 1.11 and it says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We've already recited Jeremiah 17. We'll get back into it. But the man who trusts in man You're going to be disappointed over and over and over. But you put your hope in Jesus. He will be faithful. Amen? Let's look at the next thing. So why am I picking this passage? Because what happens is Stephen starts to draw parallels. He starts to show where man fails. And you would think that hope would fail, but God comes through, right? And he says, you know this. You know this history. Let me remind you. God spoke into this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. Doesn't sound real hopeful, does it? But do you remember that he said that there was a promise after the 400 years, what would happen? He says, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And by the way, insertion, not there, but intentionality of what Stephen is saying. Excuse me, guys, how did that work out? Yet there was all this complaining. There was all this lack of focus on what God had established as what you need to hope in. Let's see the next point. And he says, then, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. How much hope was there for Joseph as he's being sold into slavery? How much hope was there for Joseph when he ended up in prison for years, falsely accused? How much hope is there for you 
When you're facing trials and challenges and circumstances, it just seems overwhelming. But if you're focusing on those things and you're not focusing on the God who could establish Joseph, who was in a pit one day, and then several days later, years later, he's over the whole household of Pharaoh. And Stephen is saying, this is the God we serve. And he's building. He's building towards something. Next, who does he go to? The very person that he's accused of slandering. He says, you want to talk Moses? I'll talk Moses. Ready? And he says, this Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses is hiding out. The angel of the Lord appears in the burning bush and gives him a task, gives him purpose, which is part of the hope for Israel, right? And yet what happened? Those very people who are looking for hope, but their hope is persecuted. The hope comes, and what do they say to him? Who appointed you judge? Stephen chose his words very carefully because he knows his audience. And these men who are losing their power because they're believing in an established form of religion and not Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ and all that's happening around them, he's saying, really? Do you remember how the leaders of Israel came to Moses, the very Moses you hold to, and they said the very things you're saying to me now? By the way, how'd that work out? I think he's speaking boldly, is he not? And then he reminds them again. He talks about the tension. He talks about the persecution. And he says, this man, this man who was doubted, what did he do? He led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. Reminding these accusers, these persecutors of hope, what? Saying, when you see the power of God, which they had been seeing, that's why they were nervous. That's why they were trying to quash what was happening through the apostles. He says you cannot deny it, even so much so that someone from their own leadership group, the Sanhedrin, just prior, had said about Peter and John, let him go. Because if this is of God, you will not be able to stand against it. But they can't let go of their power. And they want to persecute hope because of their own sin. This is a reality, brothers and sisters, that we live in. So let me take you to some specifics. And then he takes it to Joshua and to David. And it says, Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Now why would he take time to speak to that historical point? Because what happened in the accusations brought against Stephen is they said, this man brings accusations against this very temple. You didn't mess with the temple, folks. Right? That, that's that's kind of like messing with the, the formula at in and out You just don't mess with some things in life. They are sacrosanct. Okay? And, and so he says, can I remind you, since you're so sensitive about the temple that God himself said, David wanted to build a house, and he says, no. He says, as a matter of fact, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to let your son build it. 
That's how much I'm irritated by your whole process here. But I'm going to acquiesce to that. But in the midst of that, God says what? I'm not contained by any house. I'm not contained by any house. So, persecuted hope. Sin wants to persecute the message of hope. Why is hope always under attack? Well, let me give you what I think. Doubt, sin, focus, choices. When you struggle in the area of hope, often it's because you doubt what it is that God has said is waiting for you, spiritually. When you doubt when it comes to hope of things just naturally in life, it's because you might be placing your trust where? You might be placing your trust into men who will fail. But if we regulate our expectations to those things that God has given us to do, then we will succeed. Amen? Sin. Sin seeks to destroy the very thing that would give us hope. You see, the men who are accusing, they're ready to murder another person for no reason. Their hearts were vile with sin. Sin of pride. Often the reason that we get a little disjointed in our hope is that our focus is on what? Our focus is on the tremendous difficulty in front of us. Our focus is on the waves. Our focus is on whatever your circumstance is. You keep looking at that or you keep looking to people that will fail as opposed to understanding the expectation God and the purpose God has for you and you relate everything according to this purpose. Well, if your purpose or your understanding of that purpose is way off balance you're going to be frustrated all the time. That's why it's so important to understand the will of God. That's why Stephen can stand in front of these men fully knowing he was ready to go where he was going to go. That is why he gives the history lesson. That's why he speaks boldly the truth. Is he understood the context of what God had for him as a purpose? I recently heard this statement that there are two very important days in your life. One is the day that you were born. Second is the day that you find your purpose. The day that you find your purpose. What causes your hope to fail? Think about that. Let me give some suggestions. Choosing to hope in failed people and systems. Right? Again, you've heard my travails of my music in my car. They are so spiritually whacked out it's just it affects my spiritual walk tremendously um i wanted to be able to use bluetooth so i can talk because i do a lot of talking while driving on the road so for my birthday a few years ago we put in this this uh car stereo and it has a remote that's pretty lazy right you've heard me talk about this stupid remote right and so the remote stopped working about three four weeks ago and it's really irritating that I have to reach that far <laughs> to actually change things, right? So what did I do? I got on eBay and I bought a new remote. The, the remote stopped working. We were out as a family like a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, and I'm like this, and nothing's happening. And I was like, <laughs> and I'm like, calm down, calm down, calm down. It's not that big of a deal. I'm letting myself get completely off the right things because I'm so concerned about the wrong things 
Do you know that they make things to actually break down so you spend more money later? You know, that's, that's good contextualization. Understand the broken world we live in. Don't get consumed with the material things that add to your distraction from the things that God has for a hope for you. What is the result of hope in God's covenant? Faithfulness by God to bless the faithful. God is faithful when we put our hope, when we place our hope into his covenant. But we have to understand his covenant. Stephen standing there, is his hope to survive this? I don't know. I wasn't there. I can't ask him. But based off of the narrative, I would say probably not. Probably not. Because the way he presented himself to his Lord and his God certainly seemed like he was ready to go. It certainly seemed like he was more eager to be in heaven than he was to be on earth. Because he understood the total picture. His total hope was in God, not in the things around him. As we move forward, the problem with man makes us look at something that's, that's valuable. Uh, my family went and saw um, uh, a comic book movie. And there are some really good, poignant things in this comic book movie that's out there. And there's this great struggle about the ugliness of who man is. And is it being caused by this exterior thing or is it just inherent within man himself to be ugly to be violent and there's a great quote by one of the heroes in the movie where he comes to this he's, there's this tension about this question throughout at least half the movie. And finally, in a desperate conversation, this person saying, I don't have time to explain to a person who's from outside the environment of mankind trying to understand how man works. And he says, I wish I could explain it to you. I'm not sure I totally understand it. But rather than saying, quote-unquote, the devil's making us do it, Maybe we're all to blame. It's a pretty prolific statement. Because when we come to that final understanding, because his challenge was thinking that he was a good person, but over and over throughout the movie, he's wrestling with the idea that as he's trying to be a good person, there are moments in time where he does bad things. And he's questioned about it. See, the reality is, when it comes to knowing your audience, we have to understand the problem with man. And Jeremiah 17, 5-9 states it very cle clearly. We're all to blame. There's none righteous, no, not one. Man is to blame for war, violence, guilt, hurt. All of those things. And then we own a few other things, you know, like creating the Ford Pinto or something. We're to blame for that too. Or men's rompers. I, that's, that should not be happening. All right, we're to blame for that. Actually, I'm not. I'm not to blame for that. We'll move on. But here, he comes and he, he, he becomes 
very specific Stephen does in his message. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your what? Fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You see the running line that Stephen's building here? As they're getting ready to shut him down and kill him, he's saying, yep, same old, same old, boys. Your fathers did it, their fathers did it, and their fathers did it before. You want to talk about prophets? You want to talk about how the truth affects man and the established power run? Welcome to the club, boys. Go ahead. Do what you're going to do. But he speaks truth because there's a problem with man. And he doesn't sugarcoat it. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. Here he's been accused of speaking blasphemy against the law. And he says, how dare you? Your sin is before you. You act with self-righteousness. Let me just remind you who you are in this moment. You are just like your fathers and their fathers and their fathers. Folks, there's a problem with man. Amen? The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? The problem with man, it's sin. It's just sin. By nature, we are sinners. Have you ever done the thing you wish you never did? Yeah, not, not like one major thing, like, I'm, oh man, I murdered somebody. I never wanted to do that. It, no, I'm not talking on that scope, okay? But those things that you're saying, oh, I can't believe I lost my temper. I can't believe I would shout at that person. I can't believe that, um, you know, I, I, I bought that thing when I really didn't need it, but I just got consumed with owning it. I can't believe I lied. That's not me, right? These things that we do. We are desperately lost. And until we get to that problem like Steve Trevor recognized, maybe we're all to blame. Biblical concept. There is none righteous, no, not one. And this is the problem. Even you religious leaders who are winding up your fastball to hit me with a rock, you are the worst. And as you get ready to kill me, I want you to be reminded of your fathers who killed the prophets before me. Go ahead, get ready. Fit right in line with the family tree, boys. The problem is man. And Stephen stands up and gives this stark reminder. So where do you go from there? Where do you go from there? By the way, the other things are pride. We believe we are God. Anytime that we want to do opposite of what God is establishing, that's putting ourselves as God. So Jesus has come. He has died on the cross because we have sin. If I'm sitting somewhere and I hear that message and I have not yet heard the gospel, I'm going to have this conversation. I'm going to have this discourse. Wait a minute. I'm not that bad of a person. There's all these other people that are bad. There is none righteous, no, not one. One sin separates us from God. God made one way through Jesus Christ and reconciliation 
through the Son that we might be reconciled to Him. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can be reconciled with God. His rules, His design, His will, His story, not mine. Now the question is, do we have the faith to take that step of saying, I don't fully get it, I don't fully understand it, but yes, this makes a lot of sense. Pastor, I see it. The world is a screwed up place. And sometimes I'm a really screwed up person. And I need hope. And I need that answer. I need something more. I need something better. And the beauty of it is, is that those that follow Christ, it is not Christ who fails. It is those who fail Christ who fail and struggle because of pride, because of sin. We get that. We acknowledge it. And when we get to that point of humility or a humble state and recognizing, then God can do something in our life. Then God can do something in our life. History, our action and our Father's actions are inescapable. Have you ever uttered these words? I am not going to be like my dad. I'm not going to be like my mom. Right? Or I'm not going to be like that, or I'm not going to be like this person. Right? I love, I love 20-somethings. We're going to change the world. That's fantastic. The world needs changing. That's great. I was 20 at some point. And I think I changed a little bit of the world. Like three parsecs. I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to go with it. Because nobody knows what that means. So you can't argue it. You'll do what you'll do. The question is, will it have feet to it? Well, to have eternal feet to it. And you can operate in your efforts and you may see some success. I am much more interested in operating at this level where it goes beyond my limitations. Stephen is speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by his own abilities. And it's recorded in Scripture to give us courage and to give us strength to speak truth in the moment when we know the audience needs it. Remember, the title of the sermon is Know Your Audience. So lastly, the promise of Jesus. By the way, I, I give this passage, this, this end, we were, we've already read it, but let's focus at the very end and, and say uh, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll go back and explain that later as we get into Acts, but Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, um, he was there. And he was in power. And this idea, this concept of, you know, that they laid their garments at the feet was basically saying that Paul gave them permission, gave them the go-ahead. Here is the one that has been established as the exceptional apostle outside of the original apostles. And he's the one that established the stoning and killing of Stephen in this moment. So if you're sitting here today saying, I know somebody that there's no way they're going to come to Christ, that they're going to see the hope in Jesus Christ, you need to understand what a Damascus Road experience is. Because if God could reach the very person who ends up giving the go-ahead to kill Stephen, and many others, by the way, and we read that passage this morning, he says what? I'm the chief of sinners. Then God can reach anybody with the message of the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So it says what? And this is so very important. It says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen knew Jesus. We don't have him integrated into the, the Gospels necessarily, but the fact that he sang this, he understood Jesus, whether he met him personally or whether he heard, heard the accounts of the, the crucifixion. This is what he's doing. We see Scripture, 1 John chapter 2, where it says, if we claim to know God, we need know Jesus, we need to walk as Jesus walked. We need to talk as Jesus talked. And that's what Stephen's doing in this moment where he's going to die. It is an archetype of what happened on the cross. It's a typology. And so he says what? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he says, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who does that remind you of? Yes. Does this sound like someone who was like, no, no, please don't stone me. You know, I've got a mortgage. What's going to happen over here? And, you know, I've got this appointment next week. I've got this really good job waiting for me. And, and I had retirement plans. We were going to hit the road and, and do all these things, you know. I have, I have this whole life in front of me that I have planned. And, and you're kind of ruining it by killing me right now. How many of us would have the courage to open our arms and stand and say, thank you. Thank you for the privilege to stand for you in the midst of a dark and desperate world. The promise of Jesus. You know, just some of the promises. He promised living water for eternal life to a woman who desperately needed hope. He promised life to the full, John 10.10. In the midst of talking about how Satan is the thief and he comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Do you know this, Jesus? He's reconciling us to God, 2 Corinthians 15. And says that God is doing all this through Jesus Christ bringing us into reconciliation. And it says, continues on to say, he who knew no sin, God made sin so that we might experience and we might be the righteousness of God. Amen? This is the promise of Jesus. In closing, do you have the courage that Stephen had? Who are you? Who are you? So there are some sermons that you are passionate about that, that as you study, as you look, you work through it. You get excited about the text. You get excited about the story. You get excited about how God reveals Himself. And then sometimes there are sermons that just reveal so much truth. So much hope that you desperately want people to know that hope. I want to tell you this promise of Jesus. I can't show it to you. 
Some of you know it. Some of you, Scripture says you think you know it. But you don't yet. You've not really truly tasted. And some of you don't know it. And you're just kind of waiting. So I'm wrestling right now with this idea of extending our time. I finished when I was supposed to finish. So Stephen spoke with a boldness. He spoke with courage. I'm going to share something with you to speak to this promise of Jesus. I have no understanding. It didn't work out well for Stephen in our context, right? The guy died. But in Christ's context and in a believer's context, it worked out beautifully, didn't it? This promise of Jesus, you're never going to know it. I really don't believe you're ever going to know it until you get to a point of pressure. I don't know if that makes sense, but you're never going to know it until you get to a point of pressure. But Jesus says, Lo, I am with you always. A promise, right? Jesus says, it was either Nathan or Andrew. Sorry, it wasn't in my thinking, but I saw you sitting under the tree, you know, before you even came here. Jesus directs our paths. Jesus has things marked out for us. Remember my comment about your purpose. That purpose isn't just a general purpose. Folks, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a purpose. It's written in Scripture. God knows what's going to happen. God knows what is in store for you and I. And so in context to some of the things that we've been seeing in the book of Acts and things that we will continue to see, I'm going to share something with you real briefly that I don't think any of you know. We'll see if you all return next week. Well, actually, I'm not preaching, so you'll probably come back next week. March 24th, 2012. I preached here on the woman at the well. Nothing all that significant about that. That night I went to bed, and I will tell you without a shadow of a doubt that God gave me a vision. What happened, I won't describe. What I can tell you, it was very much like what Stephen went through. And it was very real. And while the world was in chaos and destruction was happening all around, I have a statement, it's called getting in the chair. My wife knows about it. In the midst of all that chaos, the Lord showed me, and I have no, there's no significance to it. Don't go, don't go try and interpret this. I have no idea what it means. But it's just this barber chair sitting in the middle of this intersection. Why I picked up on that, I, I have no idea. But 
all of a sudden the Lord started speaking to me very clearly in the midst of the chaos and the impending destruction coming that everybody was running from. Go back and sit in that chair and face what's coming. And if you do that, you will survive. There was no external promise of if you don't, <laughs> you're not going to survive. It just was if you do that and face what's coming. I cannot describe to you what I faced. There are no words. But I know without a doubt it was evil incarnate. I know without a doubt. And the words that God told me, if you do anything to try to save yourself, you're not going to make it. If you sit there and you trust me, you'll survive. And that evil kept approaching and kept approaching to the point of forming a face that was seeking to devour me, literally devour me. And it came right to the very breath of my nostrils. And I just sat there trusting God. And it dissipated. And everybody else was consumed. And the next thing that happened was there was a messenger on my right that said, well done. Well done. Now it's time to come home. I had no idea what I was about to face. But I sat in this chair three years ago. I was going to give up. I was going to walk away from all this. And the only thing I could do was remember those words. Get in the chair. You get in the chair and trust me. Like Stephen trusted me and you're going to survive. You're going to thrive. And we faced the most hideous evil. <laughs> and I was ready to be done. If it wasn't for God coming a year and a half prior in that vision saying, get in the chair and I will carry you. I will carry you. Every part about that vision has come true. Every moment I have a doubt, it's vanquished. Every moment I think about the destruction of the world around me that seeks to devour all of us, I get in the chair. And the Lord provides. And the Lord provides. And the Lord provides. I look forward to going where Stephen went. And I don't know when that day will be. But I know that had God not given me that vision, I would not have survived the hideous thing that transpired for me, for our family.
But God, the promise of Jesus came through when I had no footing. So when we sing, on the solid rock of Christ I stand, that means something. That means something. I want to encourage you, these aren't just stories. These aren't just stories. This happens. This happens today. And when you will be in need, because to who Him has been given much, much will be required. When you are in need, God will give you exactly what you need. You may not need a vision. You may just need this message. But the question is, who are you? Who are you? I'm a believer in Jesus Christ who's simply trying to muddle through and glorify my God and Savior and act as Christ acted, looking forward to the eternal life in heaven with Him in the glorious reappearance of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. Sorry for taking us long. Father, there is a way that seems right to man, and yet it leads to death. Those words speak to us. But yet, Father, there is a way that is right, that You have revealed, that we can stand with courage in knowing that our footing is in Christ, and that when the world around us wants to strip us and persecute our hope, that we can rely on the promise of Jesus Christ. We can stand firm in that. We can, we can surpass the destruction that seeks to take us down and eliminate us. Just like Stephen. Just like Stephen. Father, walk with us this week. Help us to ask this question, who are we? And who do we need to become? And how do we find the courage to be that which you have asked us to be in the purpose of our life? Walk with us this week, God. Let us do brave things for you that fit within our purpose. Let us speak truth and love to one another. And let us always look to heaven with great anticipation. To you be all glory, Father. And we pray over our offering and those that have brought their gifts today. Bless those individuals. Work within their lives. Use this gift. Multiply it for your kingdom to go forward. To you be all glory, Father. Amen.